shaping the thoughts and dreams of an entire nation. I want to discover what motivates them, how they live, who inspires them, and what they know. It has taken me two years to get here. I have two weeks to find out. I stretch and shuffle to the window. Forty-seven floors below, the iron barge that has punctuated my night with its toe-curling screech continues to scrape rocks one by one from the muddy river. It's a quaint soundtrack, the steampunk rattle of a nation stubbornly weeded to growth, despite its 19th century technology. I wonder if the grey pyjamaed men heaving rocks off the chute go ashore to sleep, or if they are chained to the barge around the clock. With up to 200,000 people labouring to their deaths in gulags that Miss Kay will never permit me to mention, let alone film, anything's possible. But the prison camps seem far, far away from the strangely beautiful city spread out before me, with its pastel buildings and lush green parks. The light bouncing up from the river is soft and clean, infusing my drab room with possibility. It silvers the carved arms of the brocade chairs, the peeling veneer of the bar fridge, the boxy edge of the no-name TV, the wall calendar of Mount Pektu birthplace of Kim Jong-il, recently deceased. The dear leader's rosy face rises above Pektu's snow-dusted crater, beaming his technicolour smile. His permed head is haloed by a double rainbow and a star, in a glorious blood-of-the-workers sunset, Juch 100. That's 2012 in my parallel, but no longer accessible Western universe. A place which accepts that Kim Jong-il was actually born in a Siberian hut in 1942, where his mother kept him rugged to his eyeballs, in Vyatskoye Mink for three frozen winters, while his father, Kim Il-sung, waged a bloody guerrilla war to wrest Korea back from the occupying Japanese. The world I've left knows that the new star and double rainbow the North Koreans believe miraculously appeared above Pektu the day Kim was born are an elaborate mirage, along with his astonishing ability to drive a car at age three, and his genius-level prowess at everything from golf, animal husbandry, fashion design, dam building, and nuclear weaponry, to the magical art of cinema. It's all part of the godlike personality cult woven by Kim Sr., holy father of North Korea's socialist paradise, and heroic vanquisher of the imperialist Japs and invading Yankee bastards, and skillfully perfected by his cherubic platform-heel-wearing son. I officially left that world two days ago, when I handed my phone to a guard at Pyongyang Airport, watching her wrap it up in pink paper and file it away under a handwritten sign, Mobile Phone Collection Point. The Angacto's check-in lady stashed my passport away with similar efficiency, informing me with a smile that the internet is not available anywhere in the country. In an emergency, I may send one email from the hotel's only computer a 90s dinosaur perched on a doily under an optimistic banner, Taylor and Business Centre. The computer is programmed to block all email replies. I look up at the dear leader on my wall, glowing with the lusty certainty of a man who has drunk a lot of A-grade cognac, and am relieved that at last I know where my passport is. I have spent two years inside this man's strange mind, reading his words, watching his films, hearing stories of people he tortured, surfing websites devoted to deadpan photographs of him giving on-the-spot guidance to notebook-carrying minions, in Hungnam textile factories, Pyongyang movie sets, and communal turtle farms in Taedong, 
Ostensibly, I'm here to make a film, but in reality, like the man who has inspired it, I want to airbrush my life. Not long ago, my partner sat up in bed and revealed, as partners sometimes do, that he'd met someone else. No, it wasn't just an affair. Yes, he was sorry, but nothing could be done. He was in love and couldn't wait to introduce her to our daughter, over gelato at Bondi, or testing Ikea futons for their new flat. They were going to spend their lives together in marital bliss, a state which, he correctly pointed out, had mostly eluded us. I was devastated. But now I am sitting on the 47th floor of the Angakdo, the fact that my ten-year marriage is unravelling in Sydney like a midlife crisis B-movie no longer seems to matter. I am feeling serene, philosophical even. I find it oddly reassuring that Kim...